The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Following the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945, uh, this is what it was said about the scientists at Los Alamos who helped develop the bomb. It says, For years, most of the men at Los Alamos had been caught up in the excitement of the technical challenge and had given so little thought to the consequences of their action. Their celebration marked the profound relief that a monumental task had been achieved, but at the same time there was a realization of the awfulness of what they had done. That night, as J. Robert Oppenheimer walked away from the celebrations, he came across one of the younger scientists, stone-cold sober, retching into the bushes. And that comes from Peter Goodchild's book, uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, Shatterer of Worlds. If you want to check out all the books the following quotations come from, just look in the post uh, description where you will find a list of those books. Uh, with Christopher Nolan's movie coming out in two days about Oppenheimer, I've been reminded during this whole year lead up to the movie coming out about how much this topic has interested me and has been following me around since probably 1996 or 1997. And I've turned all of this material into blog posts before and even a much longer series of episodes on this podcast, sort of uh, organized thematically. But I think if I, uh, what I was able to do over the past week is just take the very, the, the most vivid of the quotations from the people involved in the development of the atomic bombs, uh, Oppenheimer especially. I was able to take all of them, find the most vivid of them, and just arrange them chronologically. And I think that might be a good way of seeing how messy and complicated a situation this really was. And I think the quotation that I just read about, on the one hand, the scientists celebrating, on the other hand, them realizing the awfulness, the quote, awfulness of what they had done. Being able to hold those two things in your mind and in your heart and in your body and in your conscience uh, at the same time. I think that is a hint. I think that is a clue to understanding this momentous moment in history. I think Christopher Nolan has uh, Matt Damon's character in the movie saying that uh, this is the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. Whether you agree with the dropping of the bombs or not, the development of them and the use of them, uh, is a change. It, it is a, a point in human history that cannot be gone back on. And I think that rather than uh, trying to come out for or against the dropping of the atomic bomb, I think it's much better, especially in our world today where everyone 
uh, has to choose a side about everything at all times. I think, especially with this topic, it is more wise to try to understand what happened, to try and understand war, rather than to simply be for it or against it. Um, and so, let's just see how it happened. How were the bombs developed, and how did they end up getting dropped on two cities in Japan in August of 1945? For instance, uh, when Spanish fascists bombed Barcelona in March of 1938, the United States Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, said this, No theory of war can justify such conduct. I feel that I am speaking for the whole American people. And in June of 1938, the Senate passed a resolution condemning the, quote, inhuman bombing of civilian populations. And on September 1st, 1939, Franklin Roosevelt said this, the ruthless bombing from the air of civilians in unfortified centers of population during the course of the hostilities, which have raged in various quarters of the earth during the past few years, and which has resulted in the maiming and in the deaths of thousands of defenseless men, women, and children, has sickened the hearts of every civilized man and woman, and has profoundly shocked the conscience of humanity. If resort is had to this form of inhuman barbarism during the period of the tragic conflagration with which the world is now confronted, hundreds of thousands of innocent human beings who have no responsibility for and who are not even remotely participating in the hostilities which have now broken out will lose their lives. I am therefore addressing this urgent appeal to every government which may be engaged in hostilities publicly to affirm its determination that its armed forces shall in no event and under no circumstances undertake the bombardment from the air of civilian populations or of unfortified cities upon the understanding that these same rules of warfare will be scrupulously observed by all of their opponents. I request an immediate reply. And so how does it happen? given those last three quotations, that in December of 1941, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt instead says this, We must face the fact that modern warfare, as conducted in the Nazi manner, is a dirty business. We don't like it. We didn't want to get in it, but we are in it, and we're going to fight it with everything we've got. How do you get there? without merely doing what we do today, the modern tendency to just say, well, Roosevelt in 1941 is a hypocrite, or Roosevelt in 1939 is just saying what politicians say. Let's imagine that in 1939 he believed what he meant. Let's say that he imagined that it was actually possible for the uh, combatants in World War II at the time to actually come to a table and agree to not bomb civilians. Um, let's believe that he really thought that was possible. And then, in 1941, that he also suddenly had a change of mind. We don't like it, we didn't want to get into it, but we are in it, and we're going to fight with everything we've got. That is the complexity that I'm talking about. Take this seriously. 
don't just dismiss it as politics as usual. And I think we can come to a better understanding of what's going on. Uh, physicist Leo Szilard, who is sort of the hero of the wonderful book by Richard Rhodes called The Making of the Atomic Bomb, the conscience of that book, uh, Leo Szilard had this to say in 1939. Uh, we realized that should atomic weapons be developed, no two nations would be able to live in peace with each other unless their military forces were controlled by a common higher authority. We expected these controls, if they were effective enough to abolish atomic warfare, would be effective enough to abolish also all other forms of war. This hope was almost as strong a spur to our endeavors as was our fear of becoming the victims of the enemy's atomic bombings. And that's the other layer of complexity that is built in here, that these extremely smart people, uh, they actually believed that the development of the atomic bomb would make, it, would make war seem so terrible that it would put an end to all war. But if we go straight to the bombings of Tokyo, March 9th to 10th, 1945, uh, Richard Rhodes describes these bombings this way. The strategic bombing survey estimates that probably more persons lost their lives by fire at Tokyo in a six-hour period than at any equivalent period of time in the history of man. The firestorm at Dresden may have killed more people but not in so short a space of time. More than 100,000 men, women, and children died in Tokyo on the night of March 9th to 10th, 1945. A million were injured and at least 41,000 seriously. A million in all lost their homes. 2,000 tons of incendiaries delivered that punishment. In modern notation, two kilotons. But the wind, not the weight of the bombs alone, the wind created the conflagration and therefore the efficiency of the slaughter was in some sense still in part an act of God. So we've gone from 1938 uh, being horrified by Guernica and the bombings in Spain to, uh, to achieving in a six hour period uh, the killing of more people at any one time by fire in the history of humanity. How does uh, America do that? Air Force General Curtis LeMay says this, said this after the war. Uh, killing Japanese didn't bother me very much at that time. It was getting the war over that bothered me. So I wasn't worried particularly about how many people were killed in getting the job done. I suppose if I had lost the war, I would have been tried as a war criminal. Fortunately, we were on the winning side. Incidentally, everybody bemoans the fact that we dropped the atomic bomb and killed a lot of people at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That, I guess, is immoral. But nobody says anything about the incendiary attacks on every industrial city in Japan and the first attack on Tokyo, which killed more people than the atomic bomb did, apparently. That was all right. I guess the direct answer to your question is yes. Every soldier thinks something of the moral aspects of what he is doing. But all war is immoral. And if you let that bother you, you are not a good 
soldier. And that's the real wrinkle here, isn't it? Uh, two things that he says. Uh, the first, I suppose if I had lost the war, I would have been tried as a war criminal. And secondly, all war is immoral. Uh, what does it mean to not justify what Curtis LeMay is doing, to not pretend that there was um, some way to explain it other than the insanity of war? What if we allow ourselves to believe that sometimes the countries we live in act immorally and could not have done otherwise in those same circumstances? What if we just admit to ourselves that sometimes, try as we might, the way humanity is set up and lives in the world, we end up doing or contributing to or simply living in a place that does horribly immoral things. There's that uh, quotation from Ken Burns, the documentary Ken Burns, that I mention a lot, where he says that most people on the left uh, say that America is horrible and all they do is horrible things. Uh, and most people on the right say that America is wonderful and only does wonderful things. And one side paints everything negative, the other side tries to paint everything uh, positive. What if we went straight down the line in the middle there? It's not a question of right or wrong on some level with these things. Um, it is something else. All war is immoral. And in this next quotation, it says that Robert Oppenheimer remembered that Secretary of War Henry Stimson said that it was appalling that there should be no protest over the air raids which we were conducting against Japan, which in the case of Tokyo led to such, such extraordinary heavily, heavy loss of life. He didn't say that the airstrikes shouldn't be carried on, but he did think that there was something wrong with a country where no one questioned that. There's that complexity again. He's not saying that the airstrike should not have happened, but he does think that it's weird that nobody is questioning it. Uh, you need to do it. Um, it should be done. You don't know what else to do. But at the same time, you just sort of expect someone to ask you about it. Both of those things or all of these things, three, four, five, six, a dozen things, all contradicting each other or at war with each other, need to be considered in your mind at the same time. And now we come to a section of these quotations where, where I note that many of the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project and developed the atomic bomb, uh, they had families in Europe or they were refugees from Europe themselves. And so the atomic bomb that they were helping to make had an obvious adversary in mind, which is Germany. But when Germany surrendered, many felt much less animus against Japan, but few of them gave up the work. They still kept working to successfully develop the bomb, even after Germany surrendered. And the physicist Otto Frisch recalled the moment in 1940 when he understood that a bomb might be possible at all. And Frisch says this later, I have often been asked why I didn't abandon the project there and then, saying nothing to anybody. Why start on a project which, if it was successful, would end with the production of a weapon of unparalleled violence 
a weapon of mass destruction such as the world has never seen? The answer was very simple. We were at war, and the idea was reasonably obvious. Very probably, some German scientists had had the same idea and were working on it. And Robert Oppenheimer said to the physicist I.I. Robbie, I do not think that the Nazis allow us the option of not carrying out that development. And the physicist Edward Teller, who later went on to become the father of the hydrogen bomb, says this, I came to the United States in 1935. The handwriting was on the wall. At that time, I believed that Hitler would conquer the world unless a miracle happened. To deflect my attention from physics, my full-time job, which I, which I liked, to work on weapons was not an easy matter, and for quite a time I did not make up my mind. If the scientists in the free countries will not make weapons to defend the freedom of their countries, then freedom will be lost. What do you do? How do you respond to a statement like that? Of course, it's coming from Edward Teller, a person that has his own, has his own image and the popular mind as, as just being an awful human being. But how do, you, how do you respond to that? If the scientists in the free countries will not make weapons to defend the freedom of their countries, then freedom will be lost. And the place that I came to many of these for the first time is a documentary by John Else, E-L-S-E, called The Day After Trinity. If you go to YouTube, you can find you can find it there, either from the upload that I made of it or of somebody else's. And um, one of the wonderful interviewers, one of the wonderful interviewees that he has in that documentary is the physicist Robert Wilson, who at various points in that documentary and in the books that I've read for this, has just said over and over again these different reasons or articulated them in different ways about why he continued to work on the bomb even after Germany was defeated and even though he really didn't have anything against the Japanese. And this is just a scattering of things that this one physicist, Robert Wilson, had to say. He says, we did have a pretty intense discussion of why it was that we were continuing to make a bomb after the war had been virtually won. But then they, uh, whatever the discussions were, they did continue to make it. He says later, it was to be the end of war as we knew it. And this was a promise that was made. That is why I could continue on the project. So the other reason is it's going to put an end to all war. It's a a weapon that no one will want to use and that people will be too afraid to to encounter their enemies having. So we believe it's going to put an end to all war. He says later, I thought we were fighting the Nazis, not the Japanese particularly, but then he still goes on to finish work on the bomb. Uh, in the longest of these quotes, he says, I would like to think now that at the time of the German defeat, I would have stopped taken stock, thought it all over, and that I would have walked away from Los Alamos at that time. In terms of everything that I believed in before, during, and after the war, I cannot understand why I did not make that act. On the other hand, it simply was not in the air, and I don't know of a single instance of anyone who made that suggestion or who did leave. 
There might have been someone I didn't know, but at the time it was just not something that was part of our lives. Our life was directed to do one thing, as though we had been programmed to do that, and we, as automatons, were doing it. And the last thing from uh, Robert Wilson that I chose, he says, I felt betrayed when the bomb was exploded over Japan without discussion or some peaceful demonstration of its power to the Japanese. And that's uh, a, common, uh, a common thing to say as well, that a demonstration should have been made. And that was one of the options that, uh, that they considered, not the scientists, but the ones who were given the bomb, who were given charge of the bomb. But uh, the response to that has always been, uh, Japan did not um, The response to that has always been that Japan did not surrender after the bomb was used on one of their cities. So what use would a peaceful demonstration of it have been? Um, and this gets to the other rub of it, which is this thing about creativity, this thing about having a job to do and needing to do it. There's a great sense from these scientists um, that is akin to what any creative endeavor is. You get locked into it um, and you want to see it towards the end. And this is the same thing that, that Robert Oppenheimer says at one point. He says, when you see something that is technically sweet, you go ahead and do it and you argue about what to do about it only after you have had your technical success. That is the way it was with the atomic bomb. I do not think anybody opposed making it there were some debates about what to do with it after it was made. And another scientist, Victor Weisskopf, said the thought of quitting did not even cross my mind. There's this great uh, tunnel vision that these guys and these women get where they have no comprehension. They, they don't even stop to consider what it would mean if it was used. Uh, they don't even think that far, let alone uh, believing that they should have a say in its possible use. I think that Nolan has mentioned, Christopher Nolan has mentioned, or one of the actors, that there is a scene in the movie that sort of, if it didn't happen in real life, it matches this moment where the scientists at Los Alamos who developed the bomb suddenly realize that just because they developed it, just because they were successfully able to make the bomb, uh, it is not in their control anymore. What they have to say about its use uh, will not be asked for and does not matter. And there's just this sobering moment of realizing that they are out of the loop now. And what are you supposed to do about that? Um, there was a Los Alamos scientist in May of 1945 who, while beginning to sense the moral implications of, their, of his work, still felt, quote, caught up in the momentum of the project and the excitement of the technology. The excitement of the project and of the technology and just caught up in the momentum of getting a job done. So we have the Trinity test in July 16th, 1945 out in New Mexico. The first time an atomic bomb is exploded um, on the earth. And physicist I.I. I. Robbie 
remember seeing Oppenheimer after that test on July 16, 1945, and Robbie says this, he was in the forward bunker, and when he came back, there he was, you know, with his hat. There's Oppenheimer's famous uh, pork pie hat. And Robbie says, you've seen pictures of Robert's hat. And he came to where we were in the headquarters, so to speak. And his walk was like high noon. I think that's the best I could describe it, this kind of strut, because he'd done it. And then Oppenheimer, this is his famous quotation, remembering the Trinity test years later, he says, We waited until the blast had passed, walked out of the shelter, and then it was extremely solemn. We knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed, a few people cried, most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him, he takes on his multi-armed form and says, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And Oppenheimer says, I suppose we all thought that, one way or another. And that clues you into the uh, complexity of Oppenheimer's own character, this uh, sensitive uh, left-wing uh, intellectual type who knows uh, who knows Hindu scripture, who taught himself Sanskrit, who knows metaphysical poetry, who um, does all of these things, but he also has the mind that helps lead the work that leads to the development of the atomic bomb. Uh, Henry Stimson, the American Secretary of War, had this to say, uh, my chief purpose was to end the war in victory with the least possible cost in the lives of the men in the armies which I had helped to raise. In the light of the alternatives, which on a fair estimate were open to us, I believe that no man in our position and subject to our responsibilities, holding in his hands a weapon of such possibilities for accomplishing this purpose and of saving those lives, could have failed to use it and afterwards looked his countrymen in the face. And this is maybe the, uh, the justification for the bomb that comes in for the most objections. Uh, the one that says we were saving American lives from storming uh, mainland Japan and uh, upwards of half a million American soldiers would have died and uh, how many Japanese civilians would have died. Uh, people seem to like to knock that one down a bit. But what if we just imagine that we aren't someone objecting to something we read in a book or saw in a documentary or even have a family connection to in our own past? Imagine that we are the person who is in this position and who has that responsibility, uh, who has to make a decision, who has to come down here or there. Um, it's not even a question of right or wrong. Um, it is that complexity again, isn't it? Uh, what are we supposed to imagine that these people would have done? I don't know. I don't have, I, I'm not saying that uh, I'm glad they did it. I just don't have a comprehensible way 
to judge the fact that they did do it. I don't think we have any comprehension, at least in America, of what it must have been like of living in a state of total war for so many years on end and so many people dying and the belief, as many of the scientists have said, that if Hitler wins, he is taking over Europe and then the world. Um, what do you do at this desperate point? And suddenly we have the option of using um, this bomb. I don't know how to judge the decision-making process. I don't know how to take a newspaper op-ed from in the years since 1945 up until 2023 and put that in a balance on the other side of it. A well-reasoned op-ed or a well-reasoned book about why civilians should not have been bombed in World War II. I don't know how to put that on one side of a scale and being in that time and having that responsibility and making that decision. I don't know how to put those things on the same scale and imagine that they are even close to each other. Edward Teller, the later father of the hydrogen bomb, had this to say in July of 1945. This is before the bombs were dropped a month later. Um, he says that he initially opposed using the atomic bomb, but came to this conclusion. He says, first of all, let me say that I have no hope of clearing my conscience. The things we are working on are so terrible that no amount of protesting or fiddling with politics will save our souls. But I am not really convinced of your objections. I do not feel that there is any chance to outlaw any one weapon. If we have a slim chance of survival, it lies in the possibility to get rid of wars. Even Teller, this person who has uh, ultra-cynical realism, even he comes around to believing that it can get rid of wars. Uh, the more decisive a weapon is, the more surely it will be used in any real conflict, and no agreements will help. At least he says that. Our only hope is in getting the facts of our results before the people. This might help to convince everybody that the next war would be fatal. For this purpose, actual combat use might even be the best thing. Isn't that a horrible, isn't that an awful thing to say, but maybe Maybe he's right, I don't know, for this purpose. Actual combat use, seeing what it does, might actually be the best thing, might actually be the best deterrent. It won't do away with all war, but it will certainly, I mean, it hasn't happened since, uh, it uh, will, will do away with the easy impulse of using it, of using atomic weapons um, in war. But the thing he says, I have no hope of clearing my conscience. We seem to believe that uh, if we are good, we are good, and we're on this side. There's no assailing that goodness. We're on the good, we're on that side. Uh, the people who are bad are bad, they're over there. There's no way for them to jump over to where we are. There's no way for the good to jump over to where the bad are. Um, what if we realize that that point of view is bullshit? Uh, what if we take Edward Teller seriously, and we imagine that sometimes, some situations in life, um, there are situations where we do things that uh, will be an offense to our conscience, will remain an offense to our conscience, and there is nothing we can do about that. 
that is that complexity. Again, imagine that that is what a great deal of life might actually be, or at least some of the most important moments of life. This is Richard Rhodes describing the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima. He says, people exposed within a half mile of the little boy fireball, that is, they were seared to bundles of smoking black char in a fraction of a second as their internal organs boiled away. Doctor, a patient commented, commented a few days later, a human being who has been roasted becomes quite small, doesn't he? The small black bundles now stuck to the streets and bridges and sidewalks of Hiroshima, numbered in the thousands. And here I just have three quotations. Um, is it three? Three quotations from people who survived the bombings of Hiroshima, the bombing of Hiroshima. This could have gone on and on for pages and pages. This is just three representative quotations. A junior college woman in Hiroshima said this, at the base of the bridge, inside a big cistern that had been dug out there, was a mother weeping and holding above her head a naked baby that was burned bright red all over its body. And another mother was crying and sobbing as she gave her burned breast to her baby. A third grade boy in Hiroshima remembers this. Men whose whole bodies were covered with blood and women whose skin hung from them like a kimono plunged shrieking into the river. All these become corpses and their bodies are carried by the current towards the sea. I got terribly thirsty so I went to the river to drink and from upstream a great many black and burned corpses came floating down the river. I pushed them away and drank the water. At the margin of the river, there were corpses lying all over the place. And a young woman in Hiroshima. We gathered the dead bodies and made a big mountain of the dead and put oil on them and burned them. And people who were unconscious, that is not dead, people who were unconscious, woke up in the piles of the dead when they found themselves burning and came running out. Now just those three quotations, you go back to the one that I started with, where the scientists are caught up in the excitement of the technical challenge and how the consequences of their actions have indeed ended the war, and then they realize how awful this bomb has been. Hold those things, both of those things, in your mind. Um, it doesn't have to all be chest pumping. It doesn't have to all be guilt either. It can be somewhere in the middle where you take everything that's happened, uh, not just since Pearl Harbor, but even before then, with America and Japan separately and together, all the things that have led to politicians, military personnel, and everybody else who can make these decisions, believing that this is the only choice that we have. What is it about human beings that puts us in a bind like that? Uh, Robert Oppenheimer says in November of 1945, only three months later, uh, speaking before the Association of Los Alamos Scientists, uh, after admitting that one reason why scientists had built the bomb was 
out of, quote, a sense of adventure, he says this. When you come right down to it, the reason that we did this job is because it was an organic necessity. If you are a scientist, you cannot stop such a thing. If you are a scientist, you believe that it is good to find out how the world works, that it is good to find out what the realities are, and on and on. It's a very long quote about him talking. But the important thing is, if you are a scientist, you cannot stop such a thing. Um, you can call his bluff and say, that's bullshit. Um, or you can take him seriously and wonder what it is about human beings and our endeavors that put us in situations where that uh, is a thing that happens. Uh, David Lilienthal, the first chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, wrote this in his diary of the keen enthusiasm of the Los Alamos scientists, and he says, I don't object at all to expressions of satisfaction on the job, of the job, um, that is being pushed and done well, but, there, but that there should not even be a single token expression of profound concern and regret that we are engaged in developing weapons directed against the indiscriminate destruction of defenseless women and children, this is what bothered me. We keep saying, quote, we have no other course. What we should say is, we are not bright enough to see another course. And that is also that complexity too, isn't it? That is the key. Um, we are not bright enough to see our way out of this in any other way. Uh, physicist Edward Teller in late 1945 said, if the development is possible, it is out of our powers to prevent it. Uh, the genie is out of the bottle, as it were. And Robert Oppenheimer, 1946, it did not take atomic weapons to make war terrible. It did not take atomic weapons to make men want peace, a peace that would last. But the atomic bomb was the turn of the screw. It has made the prospect of future war unendurable. It has led us up those last few steps to the mountain pass. And beyond, there is a different country. And Edward Teller says in 1946 as well, nothing that we can plan as a defense for the next generation is likely to be satisfactory. That is nothing but world union. And Oppenheimer in the same year says, the peoples of the world must unite or they will perish. And the note I've written in the margin is, or they won't unite at all and there will just be the Cold War. Uh, it isn't what Oppenheimer says, the peoples of the world must unite or they will perish. Uh, it's more likely that the peoples of the world will never unite. Uh, they will perish one way or the other. And uh, in situations like these, we are just waiting. Uh, President Harry Truman in 1949 says, I am of the opinion that we will never obtain international control of atomic energy. And since we can't obtain control, we must be strongest in atomic weapons. Again, that sounds like politicians speak. That sounds like a guy who loves war. It's chest pounding. But what is the actual response to that? I don't know. Uh, chemist Glenn Seaborg in 1949 said this on the development of the hydrogen bomb, very similar to what Truman just said. Although I deplore the prospects of our country, putting tremendous effort into this, I must confess that I have been unable to come to the conclusion that we should not.
that we shouldn't do it. Uh, Truman again, before leaving office in 1953, says, war today between the Soviet Empire and the free nations might dig the grave, not only of our Stalinist opponents, but of our own society, of our world as well as theirs. The war of the future would be one in which man could extinguish millions of lives at one blow, demolish the great cities of the world, wipe out the cultural achievements of the past, and destroy the very structure of a civilization that has been slowly and painfully built up through hundreds of generations. And Truman says, such a war is not a possible policy for rational men. But in the margins I wrote, this assumes that any of this is rational. If Hitler had been rational, there would not have been World War II and, um, and uh, all the negotiations would have worked. Uh, the point is not rationality. The point isn't how do you deal with, the, with uh, these things rationally. It's how do you deal with irrationality, right? That, I mean, that seems to be the whole idea of why all war is immoral. Um, when you come right down to it, it is not about rationality. It is about dealing with the irrational. And Oppenheimer later on says this, we took this tree with a lot of ripe fruit on it and we shook it hard and out came radar and atomic bombs. The whole wartime spirit was one of frantic and rather ruthless, ruthless exploitation of the known. And Oppenheimer again says, in some sort of crude sense, which no vulgarity, no humor, no overstatement can quite extinguish, the physicists have known sin, and this is a knowledge which they cannot lose. And Henry Wallace says, the consciousness of the atomic bomb scientists is one of the most astounding things I have ever seen. There's that complexity again in what Oppenheimer says. Actually, let's read this next one from him, then we can talk about that. This is late, late in his life. I think this is the late 50s, early 60s. He's upset over a fictional play that it was written about him. And he says, uh, what I have never done, but which the play shows, is to express regret for doing what I did and could at Los Alamos. In fact, on the varied and recurrent occasions, I have reaffirmed my sense that with all the black and white, that was something I did not regret. Uh, he says that he was mostly upset, he says, with the long and totally improvised final speech that I am supposed to have made, which indeed affirms such regret. My own feelings about responsibility and guilt have always been and have always had to do with the present, and so far in this life that has been more than enough to occupy me. That complexity again. Uh, in one sense, in one quotation, he says, the physicists have known sin. In some sort of crude sense, which no vulgarity, no humor, no overstatement can quite extinguish, the physicists have known sin, and this is a knowledge which they cannot lose. But at the same time, he says over and over again, I do not regret it. We have sinned. This knowledge, what we've done, is terrible, but I don't regret it. That is the complexity. That is life in the world, isn't it? Uh, James B. Conant says, uh, I did not see in 1917 and do not see in 1968 why tearing a man's guts out by a high explosive shell 
is to be preferred to maiming him by attacking his lungs or his skin, that is, with poison gas. Um, all war is immoral. Logically, the 100% pacifist has the only impregnable position, but as I wrote written in the margins, it's one that will lead to defeat. Uh, the 100% the pacifist has the only impregnable position. But once that is abandoned, as it is when a nation becomes a belligerent, one can talk sensibly only in terms of violation of agreements about the way the war is conducted or the consequences of a certain tactic or weapon. And that's important too. The 100% pacifist has the only impregnable position, which is to say um, maybe 100% either way is not where we should be looking. We need to understand the muddy ground of 33%, 68%, uh, 83%, 15%, whatever that is. That is where we need to make our decisions from. And later on, understand that that is where the decisions were made from, not from a point of certainty and 100% anything, almost out of sheer desperation. And finally, the last quotation comes from Niels Bohr, uh, the physicist Niels Bohr. Only by extending this powerful weapon to other countries could we guarantee that it would not be used in the future. So what are we to do with all of this? Well, I usually go back to a remark from George Orwell, who is responding to citizens in Britain who are horrified by the British bombings of German cities and German civilians. And Orwell says that there is something very distasteful in accepting war as an instrument and at the same time wanting to dodge responsibility for its more barbarous features. And he says that pacifism is a tenable position provided that you are willing to take the consequences. And that's interesting because in talking about all of this with people, uh, none of the people that I've come across who wish that the bombs had not been dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, none of them also wish that Japan and Germany had won the war. None of these people wish that they were now living under the governments of either Japan or Germany. And I say this more out of shame for humanity than in praise of it, because those people who wonder if lesser use of force could have won the war against Germany and Japan, what they're doing is asking the question while basking in the luxury of the victory that was purchased with the very excesses they deplore. And this seems to be what actually bothers people the most, what sickens people the most. The idea that their lives today, um, from that moment in 1945, in August of 1945, up until right now, uh, everyone's lives today exist with the atomic bomb as a reluctant inheritance. It doesn't seem right to sully our liberation of Europe with the atomic bomb, but it also seems that every national virtue has its national vice existing almost always concurrently right alongside of it. And there is no unknotting of these things. All of our lives seem to be muddied up in this way. The reason the bomb was dropped then seems to be the same reason it was developed in the first place. The United States was afraid of a world where another country had the bomb and they did not. 
and I don't know of a good response to that. They have it, you don't, and about all you can do is beg them not to use it. And this appears to be a truth without escape, that this is just the way humanity acts, that is, largely out of fear, and that until the world is rid of aggressors with any inkling of power, none of this is going to change. And so learning to understand and to cope with the unavoidable ugliness of our species at times, this seems to be more worthwhile than becoming a proponent of world peace, whatever that means, or of trotting around signs or bumper stickers that say end all wars, however you might do that. Since it is clear that alongside our tribalism, our arrogance, and our fear, such peace belongs to some other world, not to our world, and until that other world appears, our tribalism and our arrogance and our fear are just like the decision to drop the bomb. They are both a travesty and a necessity. They are both an atrocity and a terrifying attempt at doing something good. They are both something that can be mourned but cannot be apologized for, something to be regretted, not as if it hadn't been done, but regretted in the sense that human beings are the way they are, regretted in the sense that atomic weapons became an option at all, and regretted in the sense that human beings, apparently so intelligent, can yet so easily back themselves into a corner where the development and use of such weapons becomes unavoidable. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.